Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Good afternoon. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy uh, podcast. We are at uh, episode eight, the Korean War. And with us today, uh, fellow professors in the Strategy and Policy Department, Naval War College, we have um, uh, Dr. Nick Sarantakis, uh, Dr. Mark Genest, and new with us this week, Dr. John Garifano. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Pleasure. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure. Always fun. All right, we'll get into it. So we'll start as a stage setter uh, with, uh, with the red team. What's going on with world communism and what is the theory of victory for communism post China 1949? So China has gone red, what's, what's the next steps? And uh, Mark, we'll go ahead and start this, this one with you. Well, that's a big, big question. You first have to start with the idea that 1949 and 1950 were amazing years for Mao. Mao consolidates his control over China uh, the uh, the common tongue uh, flee to Taiwan, uh, and literally just as he is consolidating power uh, and wrapping up the remnants of, of the revolution uh, that he started, uh, he begins then uh, to to be called by Stalin to intervene uh, on behalf of of, of uh, the North Koreans. Uh, so this is. The period where we used to call it the, the Sino-Soviet uh, block, uh, where Mao literally sees himself as second in command behind the Chinese, the global Chinese, uh, the global communist movement, um, and accepts uh, Mao uh, Stalin's leadership. Uh, so this is going to be a very fascinating period of time. Uh, it's at the height of the Cold War. Uh, this is a period where the Americans are beginning to truly implement the containment policy. The containment policy is focused on Western Europe, not the rest of the world. Um, so this is going to be a big departure for the United States because they see the real threat of the Soviet uh, Sino bloc as a threat to everything that the United States stands for. You know, I think I'd just add, um, you know, do they have a theory of victory? It's questionable, but it probably involves being patient. Um, at least in Stalin's case, he's focused on rebuilding. And this is probably a large part of the reason that it takes him so long to give the green light uh, to Kim uh, for the attack to and Mao. So, um, you know, 20 million people 20,000 cities, towns, villages destroyed in the Second World War. So they're still in a period of uh, rebuilding and thinking long term about that, that competition with the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting point. Uh, Nick, any any thoughts on this one? Well, I mean, there. one of the things about Korea is um, this is in some ways perceived as being the Munich of the Cold War by the, the people of the West. And the idea is, is that you needed to stand up to the dictator when he was weak. So you need to stand up here. And in some ways, uh, 
Stalin is being very careful. This is on the margins of what is important. It's on the periphery. What really matters is Europe. But if you can get the Americans sucked into a fight there, it diverts their attention and it keeps them busy. Uh, so in some ways, this is a calculated um, uh, gamble or risk by uh, Stalin that this will be a war that will keep the Americans busy, diverted away from the main theater. So in one sense, even if there isn't really a formal theory of victory, the fact that you know the Americans are there and you're not, that's fantastic. And oh, by the way, you can use this to manipulate you know, your frenemy to fight your enemy. And your frenemy, of course, in this situation is China. Mao was not super ecstatic to see a unified China on his southern flank. So uh, he's- Stalin, you mean? Uh, yes, excuse me, Stalin. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I do that a lot. Uh, sounds good. We'll go to Mark for a response to this. Well, actually, I, I didn't answer the second part. And thanks for John and, and Nick for, for going into that. Look, Stalin's theory of victory is to probe the soft underbelly uh, of his adversaries and to see what he can get away with and what he cannot, uh, which is why he was able to extend in Eastern Europe. And it's why he probed in Greece, uh, in Turkey. He kept looking for weaknesses uh, in the West that he could exploit. And when the United States left uh, Korea out of its defense perimeter, um, it was inadvertently signaling that the United States wasn't willing to go to bat uh, for, for Korea. Plus, you also had the added aspect to uh, since Korea was uh, unified, every year uh, Kim Il-sung would go to Stalin and say, you know, Daddy, can I please, can I please invade the South? Uh, and that happened repeatedly. And eventually what happens with Stalin is he says, OK, look, the uh, the Chinese uh, civil war is pretty much ended. Uh, the United States has left it out of the defense perimeter. This is a good time to unleash the North. Um, and then it's an agreement with, with Mao uh, to say, hey, look, if the North goes, we want you to be the pr primary uh, force uh, to support uh, the North Korean troops. So Mao agrees to this. And also Stalin gets a few other concessions. And Mao is really looking for legitimacy in the communist movement. And he is really uh, focused on getting Stalin's support for his newly minted leadership of communist China. So for all those reasons, 1950 was the year that Stalin finally allowed Kim Il-sung to do what he'd been asking for for years. OK, so that brings up a follow up question. Um, so Marxist-Leninist theory, Karl Marx, you know, the goal is world communism, expand to the point where you have uh, the entire world is communist. How much are Stalin, Mao, and Kim living the Marxist ideal, or how much is more regional aims for, for their own personal, you know, fiefdoms? Mark, we'll start this one with you. Well, the scholars have been arguing that for years. And, and for the record, Marx actually mm -hmm. talked about the inevitability of communist revolt. Uh, and and uh, so he wasn't really looking for conquest so much as a purely Marxist theory would be that the working class, the proletariat would rise up against global capitalists. Um, that said, uh, Stalin was about his position of power and maintaining his position. Uh, most scholars would argue that while he was a communist, 
he was much more concerned with his own personal uh, grip on power. Um, and he was very cautious in uh, using power to expand. Where he thought he could get away with it, he would do so. It was like that old Leninist maxim, you probe with bayonets drawn, if you encounter mush, continue, if you encounter steel, withdraw. And that's essentially what he was doing. And then look at this as a no-lose situation for Stalin. He was allowing the North to invade the South to expand communism on the Korean Peninsula, backed by Chinese military support. So he was going to fight to the last North Korean and to the almost last Chinese. So this was a win-win. And Frank, if you're going to give him a grade for strategic analysis, this is uh, a situation where you have to go, Stalin's pretty smart about this. The, the Americans are signaling that they're not interested in uh, going to war and to protect uh, South Korea. Uh, so there you have a, a low-hanging fruit. And not only that, you're risking none of your uh, actual assets, but those of your allies. Mm, interesting. John, do you, do you see this one the same way? Uh, yeah, I think I do. And it's a good, good analysis of that balance between the role of ideology and the role of uh, some aspects, some elements of realpolitik. And I think the notion of pushing um, and seeing what you can get is clear. Uh, that's certainly what, what Stalin tried to do in Europe. And I think Mao is, uh, has his own problems. You know, it's a newly founded country. It is a uh, big years, a couple of big years, as uh, Mark said, but um, there's concern with just how secure every aspect of that huge country is. There's still concern about what uh, Formosa, Taiwan is going to do. There's concern about the United States because, you know, we were somewhat involved earlier on. Um, so, so he has also this balancing act to do. As far as Kim Il-sung, you know, I think he's pretty well focused on a peninsula and doesn't have any dreams of world domination, but in some ways his commitment to the ideology, uh, his version of the Korean version of that, North Korean version of that is at this point probably even stronger than the other two. Nick, any, uh, any response to this one? Um, I think I just want to underscore what uh, Mark and John have already said. There are a lot of bureaucrats in China um, and it, it, every dynasty would come in and they'd uh, replace them, etc. Uh, there are more bureaucratic positions in China than there are members of the Communist Party. So Mao has seized power, but he still has ways to go to consolidate. Uh, he also has to uh, basically uh, finish off some fights in some peripheral areas of China where the nationalists still have some remnants. The bulk of Chiang Kai-shek's army is still is on Taiwan, but that doesn't mean he's got 100% security. And he's got a weird situation with an army that he doesn't entirely trust, because a lot of units uh, switch sides during the Chinese Civil War. Primarily nationalists join the uh, People's Liberation Army. So you got to figure out what to do with those guys. The other thing to think about here is to realize what the world in the region is like. You just fought this huge world war, and you have created basically a power vacuum in the region. Um, the last person to govern the unified Korea was a Japanese general. And a friend of mine who teaches in California has coined the phrase an international civil war. Because the Japanese withdrawal from Korea, which had been a colony for some 40 some odd years, 
uh, the question is who replaces the Japanese? And the long story made short is it's the Republic of Korea and the Nat Democratic, excuse me, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, North Korea, South Korea, and they don't, they claim to be the legitimate government of the whole region. And you see a lot of that in other parts of Asia where their power vacuums are, are developing and people are willing to fight to decide who replaces them. And that's really going on in China, in Korea. You really have a civil war here going on and that's going to keep, um, that's a major dynamic in starting this conflict. So there's, um, as Mark, as you mentioned, there's um, communist insurgencies, civil wars, if you will, going on in places like Greece and Turkey. Um, one is actually tried in Korea, South Korea, it fails. Why does then, um, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Kim uh, asking Mother May I to, uh, to Stalin to, uh, to unleash the tanks. Why this bold stroke unlimited attack, which is, which is somewhat different than what we see in the rest of the world at this time period with the, you know, communism trying to take over? Well, we have to remember that there's been an insurgency in South Korea for a number of years, and it's quite a deadly insurgency. I believe there's 10,000 casualties. Uh, and the South uh, Korean government was ruthlessly putting down this insurgency and quite effectively. Um, so the communists uh, in the North tried the traditional uh, method uh, like Mao used of creating an insurgency to destabilize the government. Uh, but that didn't work out as well as the as Kim Il-sung hoped it would be. Uh, so then what happens when you fail to do that, then you look for more traditional methods uh, of doing so. Um, and he kept thinking that since the Americans left it out of the defense perimeter and basically gave a green light uh, to the north uh, to invade. And it's one of the interesting things. Is the Americans are really concerned not just with the north invading the south, but with the south invading the north. Um, as a result, we didn't give South Korea the kind of offensive um, uh, military means uh, needed to uh, to invade because we were keeping the spending uh, down so that the South wouldn't invade the North. As a result, they didn't have enough artillery, enough mechanized divisions to, uh, to really uh, defend themselves. That's the great irony. We were so worried about offense that we forgot about defense for the South Koreans. Um, so. It looked, again, to both the North Koreans and the Soviets that this was the ideal time to try to take advantage of this, what, what Nick was talking about, a power vacuum um, in the Korean Peninsula. Mm, interesting. Uh, John, we'll, we'll go to you for any thoughts on this one. Yeah, and I think just to follow on that, the um, I may talk about it in the lecture, I'm not sure, but um, why at this time... Uh, the, the U.S. actually looked at the problem three times, you know, over a period of two or three years and decided to pull out. Seeing the withdrawal was one thing. Going to the United Nations was another signal unintended uh, because it seemed so weak at the time. And so that appeared to offer an opportunity. And then finally, as I think uh, Mark said, the speech by Dean Acheson in which he somewhat mistakenly took it out of our defense perimeter. And so all of these things make for this uh, very opportunistic move. And it was a shock. And I like the way you phrased the question because uh, it was um, not what we had expected to be um, the slow communist building of insurgencies, cross-border attacks perhaps, 
uh, you know, but this was enough columns of tanks racing across the border and getting to Seoul very quickly. So it did shock us. And that that had a lot to do with our response too. Okay, well, that's probably a good segue since, um, since we started to kind of talk about that of, you know, turn, turn the map around to the to the, the blue side of the, of the equation here. So we talk in this case a lot about theory of containment. We've got, you know, the X article by George Kennan that says, okay, if you just hold these geographic regions, you're okay, just contain them there. And then we've got NSC 68 by, uh, by NHTSA that uh, uh, doesn't say rollback as Mark usually reminds me of, but, uh, but it's a more aggressive form of containment. <laughs> and so, you know, there's these competing theories of containment. So where are we in 1950? And as you just mentioned, John, that, you know, okay, Dean Ashton says, well, is, that's not in our sphere. Um, you know, what is, and then that quickly changes. And Nick, since I didn't, since we skipped you for the last one, I'll we'll start with you. Well, that's an interesting question. This is obviously represents kind of the NITSI uh, approach to, or NITSI and his staff to be really accurate, uh, their approach to uh, containment. But the interesting thing that most people don't remember is that Kennan actually supports action in Korea. He thinks, okay, although he believes primarily in uh, the big D uh, in dime, you know, he's a foreign service officer, he's, a, he's ambassador to uh, Moscow, you know, he believes in I and E, you know, he he still sees there's there's a role for the military element of national power, and he's like, yeah, let's let's send some guys to uh, Korea and fight there. So, one of the things here is that Korea is on the periphery, and it is not important in 1945. It is next to something that is very important, and that's Japan. So, better to fight elsewhere instead of ruining Japan. If you wait for them to invade Japan. You might defend it successfully drive them off but you've damaged something pretty valuable so uh, better to fight on real estate that no one cares about except the koreans so okay mark we'll, we'll go to you next well I, I think one of the fascinating things about this is that nsc 68 comes out months before uh the korean conflict and truman looks at it and goes this is too assertive too aggressive uh, and literally puts it in a drawer of his desk. Um, and then all of a sudden, the Korean invasion occurs. And now Nitz's much more pessimistic viewpoint uh, that the Soviets will not rest and they, they do seek uh, global domination. It seems a lot more plausible than it did even months beforehand. Uh, so, so you have that regard. And remember, the containment policy put forth by Kennan was a very nuanced policy of pushback when they pushed out of like exactly like uh, Nick was saying, um, a wonderful combination of military, economic information um, and diplomatic means. But when this occurs, it's that fear that drives American foreign policy that now they're seeking not just you know dominance in Europe, but other spheres. And if the United States doesn't stand up, then no one else will. Um, also, we, we forget this is uh, this is a, a fledgling new organization called the United Nations um, and the Truman administration in particular wants to make sure that this new institution is legitimized um, and, and can respond to this new crisis on the Korean Peninsula in an assertive fashion. Uh, so this is an opportunity for the Americans to go, hey, look, we created the Security Council. 
we gave it the empowered it uh, to prevent these kinds of things for peace making and and peacekeeping. Let's do it. And fortunately for them, of course, uh, the Soviets uh, were boycotting the Security Council uh, because of Taiwan. Uh, the United States, you know, allowed uh, Taiwan to represent China instead of a communist China. Uh, so this was an opportune time for the United States to go to the Security Council and get their backing. And the Truman administration does this. So in Truman's viewpoint, this is not just an anti-communist uh, kind of uh, a policy on the part of the United States. It is the legitimizing of a brand new institution uh, in which is supposed to resolve the major crises of international politics. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, John, any uh, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I fully agree. And I think the other thing you have to um, remember is we thought it was going to be a cakewalk. So we thought it was going to be pretty easy. Um, and we made decisions very early on, which we then have to follow up on and would have probably followed up on in any case. But initially, we think that basically building up slowly to a regimental con combat team is going to take care of the problem. So I just stress that because there is this image in the background of the minds of Truman and Atchison and others that we can take these guys. Um, mm. So the feasibility of it, the what looks to be like a low cost. Now, even as that becomes um, clear that that's a misunderstanding within a week or two, of course, we, we do um, follow through for all the reasons that Mark and Nick have mentioned, which is the nature of the attack, um, the importance of the United Nations, and uh, the dagger pointing at the heart of Japan, as I think Dean Atchison called it. As he put many things, he is, in his own words, he made things clearer than truth on occasion. And if you look at the map, if you look at the map, it's not exactly a dagger pointing at the heart of Japan, but the, you know, some way geostrategically it was. So. <laughs> that that brings up an interesting question about, um, you know, you say, okay, the thing is going to be a cakewalk, and it's, you know, it's our example. It's supposed to be a limited war, but it quickly goes to this unlimited conflict, but. Was there any, did, did Truman really have any viable political option to say, no, we are not going to uh, fight in Japan because, or excuse me, in, um, uh, in, in Korea? Because after China falls in 49, it's the Republicans are really kind of wearing him out, right? There's definitely a domestic political component to it. He had, and, and we, had, we can ask the same question about Kennedy later and about most presidents. You know, they have a series of defeats or things they say no to, and then there's another this big decision, and can they say no again? Or will they be impeached, you know, as Kennedy famously put it during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Um, I think that that's a factor, but I think for all of these reasons, the nature of the attack, what it looked like, what, his, what the vision was for um, Japan and East Asia, uh, it's not the primary motivation. He did not get involved in a war in China, in the Civil War eventually, militarily. Uh, he did not get involved militarily in the uh, Greece and Turkey, uh, it's true. Uh, but this was a shock. Our allies supported it as well, and I think that was part of it. Um, and he knew that that, that, that that support would be forthcoming. Uh, yeah. Okay. And Mark, I know you're a huge Harry Truman fan, so we'll go to you next. I am. I was, he was probably the, the last great Democratic president uh, that we had. 
Um, look, you can't, there's no such thing as foreign policy and domestic policy. Uh, and when you're a, a superpower, they are so intertwined that you call it intermestic policy. So any decision a president makes is not purely based on uh, foreign, foreign affairs or domestic politics. It's a combination of the two. And we have to begin it. This is the beginning of the era of the McCarthy period, um, where virulent anti-communists uh, on, on the hard right uh, are accusing people uh, like Truman and, and even Dwight Eisenhower of being soft on communism. Uh, and, you know, McCarthy will later on have this list, which is non-existent, of, of, of known communists working in, in the American government, which is going to wreak havoc uh, in, in the American government. So Truman understands that because, like John pointed out, the United States did not well, actually withdrew troops uh, from China and did not go into a full-scale land war in Asia, which is never a good idea. Just watch The Princess Bride. Right. Um, that <laughs> this is something that, yeah, <laughs> this is something really important. So Truman was very wise and discreet with the use of American power. Um, and the idea of containment was only to do so when it's in the vital national interest of the United States. And so this is the reason why uh, the political from both Republicans and Democrats, we forget that Democrats were Cold War warriors in the 1950s. So it wasn't a partisan thing. It was a bipartisan commitment to, to containing communism. He had no real choice uh, but to, to act the way he did. And remember, it was both on the liberal side and the conservative side here. The liberals said, look, we've got to stand up for the United Nations. This is going to change the world. And the, and, and the Republicans are like, look, you know, this is anti-communism. You can't let them spread. And don't underestimate the palpable fear of the Sino-Soviet bloc in the West. I mean, this was a large percentage of the world, a significant percentage of the world's population and geography that now had come under the cloud of communism. We had to do something. Sure, Nick, we'll go to you. Yeah, the, the question, the original question was, did Truman have options? And he certainly did. He could have, he could have said, nah, we're not gonna do anything here. Uh, that uh, does not appear to be an option that he seriously considered. And then the question becomes, why Korea and not, uh, you know, not China or why there and not somewhere else? Korea is not valuable real estate in 1950. It just isn't. Uh, it is uh, a peninsula and it is something that Japan has been strategically concerned about for quite some time. Uh, you have a samurai expedition to try to seize control of Korea in the 1590s. So uh, that leads to the creation of uh, the shoguns. Uh, and that's a long story. If any of you saw the Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai, uh, he basically, Taigo Sakamori, who is a real person, um, uh, he uh, actually leads an expedition to conquer Korea in the 1870s before he runs afoul of everything. So, and then of course, uh, Korea is conquered as a consequence of the Russo-Japanese War, which we have studied and occupied for a while. So. It is something that the Japanese are concerned about, and we've kind of taken over ownership of, of Japan, so we're kind of concerned about that. The other issue is, you know, a lot of one of the big questions in the history of the Korean War is why doesn't the U.S. military perform? Uh, why do they perform so poorly at the beginning? And the short answer to that is the U.S. military that defeated Germany and Japan four and a half years earlier doesn't exist. It's been demobilized. It's gone. 
particularly in the ground power uh, services, the Army and the Marine Corps. Uh, the Navy, you've got a lot of ships that I suspect are manned at half capacity and you've got a lot of airplanes that are sitting in Arizona where there's little humidity and all that sort of stuff. But even if you had that military, can you invade China with it? Can you bolster the nationalist regime? Uh, you send those assets to Europe and given the geography of Europe, you kind of you know have a funnel cone, the, the most valuable territory in Europe is in the West and there are a series of rivers that give you natural barriers where you can stop. So, yay, good. Go to China. It doesn't quite work that way. Korea, Korea is a good region. It's not China. It's not big and massive. There are no real kind of places to stop. Uh, it's not Japan, which is to say really valuable stuff. Korea, it's a peninsula. This is a susceptible to air and sea power given the technology of the 1950s. So even if you don't have a big military, it's something you can do. And you, there was a lot of talk about that in the NSC meetings uh, where Truman kind of wrestles with this idea. And the idea is, yeah, you're going to send, initially you're just going to send air and, and sea units. And then they, MacArthur gets on the phone and says, no, I need ground troops. So, Yeah, I, interesting point. Occupation duty can definitely make you soft. But the first provisional Marine Brigade does hold the Kusan perimeter. Yes, it does. Just, put, just putting that out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little service service jab for you. It does a great uh, job. Mark, we'll, we'll go to you first. Yeah, let me disagree a little bit with what uh, Nick said about the Korean Peninsula. International politics perception is oftentimes more important than reality. And the perception is if the United States allowed the North to invade the South, uh, that it was seen as uh, an ally that could not be depended upon. And for a superpower, that's extraordinarily important. Uh, so, you know, I, mean, I, I still think that geopolitically, the, the, the Korean Peninsula is enormously uh, important, not just because of its, its um, you know, uh, presence near uh, Japan, uh, but also for the sea lines as well. And look, if you're going to, and, and this is where I agree with Nick, if you're going to fight uh, in uh, against the communists, the Korean Peninsula is the ideal place for a maritime power to take on a land power. Um, so for perceptions, it's incredibly important for Truman. He cannot be seen as weak because that'll undercut the American prestige, or we call honor. Uh, and that is an important thing for any superpower. Plus, ideologically, he can't he can't refuse to to get involved because of the containment policy and the United Nations. Uh, so this is the perfect place for Truman to say, "I'm drawing I'm drawing a red line. This will not happen. This will not occur. It will not stand by." Plus, this is a an example of using all of the alliance. I mean, this is the United Nations passes the Security Council, which demands the removal of North Korean troops, and then passes an additional uh, Security Council resolution that calls for peacemaking. So this is a unified international community trying to uh, resolve this crisis. So let me, let me pull the thread on that just a little bit, Mark, because you know, in the Peloponnesian War week, we talk a lot about the should the, uh, you know, invasion of, of, uh, of Sicily have happened, should should the Athenians go to Syracuse. And one of the uh, resounding, usually students say, no, it's a bad idea, too far, whatever. But the argument for it is, oh, we have to go to support our allies in Sicily, which is which is usually, you know, somewhat tenuous uh, 
uh, tenuous evidence at best, but here we're kind of seem to be kind of taking the opposite approach. What do you think is different for uh, for this situation? Is it just context or? Well, the United States is a true superpower at this point. In fact, uh, one could argue it's a unipolar moment uh, that while the Soviets um, have atomic weapons at this point, um, and while the Chinese have numbers, the United States is the lone superpower. Uh, so therefore it has a lot more leeway than in a bipolar world uh, that, uh, or actually a tripolar world with Persia uh, and Sparta being, uh, you know, their equals or more. So the U.S. has a little bit more leeway. Also, we have new technology. Uh, our ships are a little faster than the triremes that the, the Athenians had. Um, and again, the United States is not acting on its own. It's acting as one member of the international community. Uh, so we have something even larger than the Peloponnesian League. Interesting. Okay. So um, that's probably a good segue then if, you know, we've, we've made the decision to fight in, in Korea, um, you know, for various reasons. So, and it, it goes back to the point that you mentioned, John, about, you know, you, you think you can just send a regimental combat team over there and, and, and halt the North Korean advance. Uh, and Mark, you mentioned, you know, the, the, how a maritime power can at least isolate a, a, a peninsula. Um, so there are some ways that, as a superpower, you said we can fight here. Why do we? Why do we kind of piecemeal ourselves into it? And why do we put MacArthur in in, in charge of it? Um, and since Nick, I know you're the biggest MacArthur fan we have here in the department. We'll start with you on this. <laughs> well, that's that's a good question in the sense that uh, it was a decision that F, excuse me Truman uh, started to regret once he had made it. Um, MacArthur is there, and. Uh, you know, you could have easily kind of sidelined him and said, no, you're too busy doing Japan. This is a separate theater. But that decision wasn't made. The military assets that were available were those in Japan, in Okinawa. Um, and, you know, it's like send them there. And it just kind of grew out of the situation. Uh, in retrospect, Truman and uh, several other people well said, you know, we should have probably just marginalized him and kept him over there. But he was the senior guy. He was, you know, he had the military assets and, you know, let's go fight. Um, so that's kind of what gets MacArthur into the fight uh, originally. And MacArthur takes a look at the situation. He, he understands what's what. MacArthur gets knocked for having a large ego. And that, that's certainly true. He does. He has a huge ego. Um, in studying, working in his archives at the MacArthur uh, non-presidential presidential library, um, which is my kind of humorous name for his uh, archives down in Virginia, um, you know, you can actually see a guy who can really think about issues, you know, you can really see a sophisticated uh, understanding of stuff, who's even sympathetic, you know, you kind of end up liking him and suddenly he goes full MacArthur. And you're like, oh, you just had to be a jerk. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's um, it's stunning. Sometimes you can see these really, you know, um, endorsements of policies that you would not attribute to, um, you know, egotistical military commander. And then, you know, it's like, and it's sometimes it was almost like he was playing MacArthur. Um, so, you know, he takes a look at the situation in Korea and he can see, you know, what can be done. I mean, he, he, goes with Inchon and it's like, I'm going to use amphibious power. I'm going to hit them in the side. And this is kind of reflects uh, an approach that he likes to use towards war fighting uh, that's dependent on 
speed, surprise, and maneuver. And it works. Uh, in a sense, it's almost a decisive victory. Um, and I say almost because there, when you ask yourself, what are you fighting for? I don't think the Truman administration has a clear idea of what they're fighting for, um, you know, or whether the objectives protect Korea, save, save South or protect Japan, save South Korea. Well, MacArthur's pretty clear on what he's going to do. He's going to unify Korea. And that doesn't necessarily have to be what we're fighting for. If it's fighting simply to save South Korea, protect Japan, boom, the war's over with Incheon. So MacArthur has a lot of ability. He doesn't become a, a four-star and then a five-star general on accident. And I just also say on the ego thing, I don't, I've not interacted with a lot of generals and admirals, but my impression is that healthy egos come with the job. <laughs> we'll edit that part out so that you don't get in trouble next week. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you a follow-up just because, you know, it was interesting today you uh, talked about in your lecture on um, uh, MacArthur's uh, Southwestern Pacific Drive, how FDR, uh, you know, knows how to kind of uh, politically um, keep MacArthur at bay and what to do to throw him a bone. Um, the Larrabee book talks about this, right? But now here we see a different uh, a juxtaposition. Is that just because Truman is not as savvy a politician as, as Roosevelt was in terms of how to deal with uh, with Doug MacArthur? That might be some of it. Although Truman is certainly not uh, lacking for you know backbone and all this, but his ability to dominate might not be as good as uh, FDR's. And I, the more I study the situation, the more I begin to see FDR is right up there with Lincoln and the ability to assert his uh, authority over very proud people who think in many ways that they deserve his job more than him. So um, Truman certainly had that situation and the alternative is basically to get rid of people. Uh, he certainly had people in his cabinet who for a variety of reasons thought they should have his job instead of him. Um, Wallace uh, and Burns uh, come to mind immediately. So some of that's that. Uh, some of it is also because uh, they don't know exactly what they want to do. I mean, there's a great deal of confusion. Europe is the thing. What do we do about a Korea? And as I mentioned earlier, even uh, Kennan is willing to say, yeah, well, let's send something there. This is periphery, but this is, this is a traditional area of Russian interest, and we have to show some opposition there. And you look at the memo traffic, and it almost looks like, you know, Who's the who's the who's the boss and who's who's the junior person? Because Truman's writing letters to MacArthur, and it's like, dude, you're the president, not him. And um, Mar George C. Marshall was also always has been very careful in how he handles uh, Marsh uh, MacArthur, and um, that kind of made sense in World War II. It makes less sense in, uh, in Korea, but uh, there's. Oh, general reluctance to really impose authority on top of MacArthur. Yeah, John, we'll go to you for a response. Yeah, the uh, you know MacArthur was became a cadet in 1899. So you ask <laughs> why? Why was he appointed? He was, in a sense, the senior person in the U.S. military, even if not by office. But everybody else had worked for him, sometimes at a very low level. So, and that was a problem, and that was a problem in his attitude towards them. So between that and the fact that he was commander in chief Far East forces and he had done a great job in Japan, he had uh, a reputation 
generally as a very good general. Um, he received votes in the 1948 Republican National Convention. Everyone knew that he was going to uh, get into politics. Um, but you know, I think the, the real reason is he was in the position that he was in in Japan, and this made him uh, the logical person. And there would have been, there would have had to have been a, a good reason not to choose him. Um, and uh, yeah, his uh, ego got the better of him. But uh, there was another problem in that if you go to the MacArthur Museum, uh, which uh, Nick mentioned and which I highly recommend, there's a great talk a video of him giving the speech at the 52 Republican National Convention when he and many others thought he was going to, you know, go all the way. And he's, he's from that last century, unfortunately. He just sounds different. And he really wasn't up with, um, I don't think, modern warfare, modern intelligence. Um, he didn't understand the American public and the role that the public and politics plays in war. So he really... In, in many ways was the wrong person to uh, for that position. But I can see why he was chosen. Mark, we'll go to you for your response. Well, I, mean, I agree with what uh, John, uh, Nick and John, and John said, but let me just add a couple things. When MacArthur presents his plan for Inchon, he presents it to the fledgling Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, this is a brand new organization. Um, and you have Bradley as the Joint Chiefs, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he, again, like John said, had served under uh, MacArthur like everyone else had, um, so he was easily intimidated by MacArthur, and MacArthur understood this, and he, when he went in to brief it, he didn't ask for permission. He basically said, this is what I shall do, um, and you will accept it. And he didn't even wait for a vote or any kind of a, of, of, of significant uh, feedback from the joints. He just said, hey, this is what I'm doing. It's, it was like the five star, you know, briefing the one star. This is, you know, get on board or, or shut up um, or shut up and get on board. Um, so his ego was immense and he was a dynamic speaker. Uh, so when he presented things, he intimidated, but he also was so charismatic that people wanted to follow him. Um, even though one of the crips coming from one of the joint chiefs after the presentation was, well, I think it's got a 50-50 shot of working. I mean, that's not exactly a, you know, a, a, a real bold endorsement of the of strategy. But he was put in charge of that because in many ways he was the right man at the right time for it. He was, a, he was very well experienced with amphibious landings. Um, he really was able to galvanize the kind of support. And remember, this person has had, uh, MacArthur, I think had had three or four decades in Asia uh, uh, with a vast amount of experience. Uh, so he was the logical person to take uh, in, in charge. The problem was Harry Truman, like Nick mentioned, wasn't quite sure what he wanted. Uh, the, uh, the, the resolution that passed was literally, it was to protect the sovereign uh, nature of South Korea. Um, it was about pushing North Korea out. That was the limited aim. When MacArthur automatically, uh, the Inchon landing was so incredibly successful, 
He was told, look, you don't push up to the Yalu if you see any evidence of, of pushback or any evidence of a Chinese incursion. Um, that would, those were kind of vague uh, announcements or, 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 or uh, pronouncements from the president. But if you have an attack dog like MacArthur, a very aggressive, assertive general, and you don't put him on a leash, whose fault is it? The attack dog? or the person who didn't put him on the leash. And here you can really, I think, criticize Truman for not being precise. If you know someone that's aggressive like MacArthur and you do not say, do not go above the narrow neck um, or maintain your envelopment, I don't care what's happening. Instead, Truman gets caught up in victory fever and allows MacArthur to go further up to, to the Yalu. And then that, of course, uh, creates all kinds of logistical problems and allows the Chinese they're counteroffensive. And I, I want to pull the thread on that uh, discussion, but Nick has a response first. On the discussion of MacArthur, I think there are a couple of points I'd like to make that I didn't make. And one is um, a little story, and I won't be long winded, I promise. Um, I'm hey, doing Nick, I can't see half your face. Move. Can you? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm so pretty. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm doing research in um, MacArthur's archives, and his, his library is what is on the shelves of the reading room. And this is his second library because the first one is destroyed during the Battle of Manila in 1945. But the Japanese did an inventory of that library and that's captured and translated back into English. And you can see what's in his pre-war library. And looking at the pre-war library and the post-war library or post-Manila library, what comes clear is MacArthur, his understanding of uh, military, he does a lot of military history, but he stops at what we would call now the operational level. He doesn't do a lot of strategy. So one of the reasons he's very good at doing what he does is he spent a lot of time thinking about stuff. Uh, his best biographer, uh, D. Clayton James, basically says he was not a strategist. He was um, a very good commander. Um, you know, he's a great, you know, organizing supply operation, all that sort of stuff. So that's one reason you end up here is he's not kind of got the grand vision that hopefully some of our students are getting. The uh, Another thing worth pointing out is his style of warfare in World War II was what he brings to Korea and it emphasized surprise, speed, and maneuver. And in the campaign in Luzon, it, um, the commander of the 6th Army, Walter Kruger, who actually taught here at the Naval War College for 10 years, uh, Kruger is saying, hey, you know, we're starting to have these gaps open up between uh, our divisions and our corps, and we need to slow down and make sure we don't have these gaps. And MacArthur's like, the Japanese, they're out, they've run out of fuel, we have air superiority, we don't have to worry about them. And Kruger is like looking and he's starting, starting to see Japanese units here and Japanese units here. He's, and I'm putting in between a hammer anvil and he's worried about this. Turns out MacArthur's right. Well, we see the same stuff happening in Korea. Gaps are opening up and you know MacArthur's like, keep going, keep going. Well, this time the Chinese have figured out a way to kind of exploit these seams. And um, so those are two things that are worth considering when we're talking about MacArthur. He, he works and when he works, he's brilliant. I like to compare him to Babe Ruth. Everyone remembers that Babe Ruth set the record for most home runs in a career with 715. Uh, but what people also forget is he set the record for most strikeouts in a career as well. 
<laughs> the highs and the peaks and valleys. Yes. Um, exactly. So going back to this point about the shift from un, from limited to unlimited aims, Mark, you called it victory fever. But, you know, we just talked about before that, okay, Harry Truman does realize he's the president of the United States. Why doesn't he limit this or somebody in his cabinet limit this? Is it just fear of MacArthur or is it, uh, you know, why, why, why make this big shift? Because they do know they have indications that China could come into the war, right? Well, that, that, that's a really good point. Look, one of the things is, you know, they don't, you don't have the kind of communication network that we have today. So you have to give your generals who are thousands of miles away from Washington enough leeway uh, to so that they can respond to what's happening on the battlefield itself. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why uh, Truman allows MacArthur a, a great deal of leeway. And, and that's that's a practical aspect to it. The other thing is MacArthur is ignoring all kinds of intel that the Japanese will come. I mean, the Chinese will uh, invade from the north if you move up to the yellow. In fact, now scholars are even talking about uh, the fact that even if he hadn't come up to the Yalu, that there was a good chance that the Chinese were going to invade to support North Korea to stop them from losing uh, the country. Um, so what we see here then is the arrogance of MacArthur ignoring all kinds of intel that the Chinese are massing. Uh, the fact that his, his intel officers are uh, still afraid of MacArthur um, and just go along with a lot of what he says. Um, and then the, the other aspect is um, MacArthur thinks that air power will be able to, in fact, MacArthur in many ways wants the Chinese to join into the conflict because he's an avid anti-communist. And he says, look, this is as good a place as any uh, to, to start to, to, to fight the communists directly, and we can wipe them up with air power. The problem is that the, North, the, the Chinese were using very simple masking techniques, literally fires, night, night uh, uh, maneuvers to uh, allow the, their, their troops to go through uh, and mitigate the power uh, that our Air Force would have in going after them. So these really rather disruptive fundamental strategies the Chinese use mitigated our strengths in air power. And again, this is the hubris that we're talking about. We always underestimate our enemy. And, and you know what? After World War II, the Achilles heel of the American military is that we underestimate our foe time and time again. Mm. John, we'll, we'll shift to you for a response on this one. I think in terms of, you know, why did we not rein MacArthur in? Why did we not stop somewhere earlier? There are probably many, re several reasons, and it depends if, uh, on, on the period of time that you're talking about. So initially after Inchon, there's probably no military reason to stop rolling through the 38th, because even if that's your goal, um, then you want to give it back. And then as we continue to roll, and it's a lot easier than we, or it's as easy as we had hoped, it doesn't make sense probably not to at least take the capital take Pyongyang. And so um, there's there's good reasons for doing that. Uh, the, the underlying problem is we don't really know what we want. It is a new world and this is something that we need to communicate to the students and talk about it. It, it is um, as post 1991, uh, Mark mentioned a unipolar moment and it's probably the end of the unipolar moment perhaps or at least the beginning of our troubles. So we don't have clearly defined um, political goals 
either on the peninsula and probably not yet for the region. That's so that that's another that's another reason. And then I think Mark explained well um, this problem with dealing with intelligence. And part of the reason is that MacArthur had a court as opposed to a number of people around him who he could really who would really argue with him and and interpret the intelligence. Um, I th and, and that explains probably the problems as you go north. You know, the, the hardest thing to explain is simply why do you go past the narrow waist and then why do you not pay attention to the two to 300,000 troops that might be across the border? Now, they did pay attention to it. The president of the United States got in a plane and flew to Wake Island. So they took it seriously. Um, but it's bit of um, wishful thinking combined with probably political difficulties of relieving MacArthur at this point because there's no good reason to combine thirdly with the nature of MacArthur and his staff. Yeah, interesting. Nick, we'll go to you first. Yeah, part of the, part of the problem with the, the debate, particularly in the historical literature, is you know, everyone's like, oh, why did, you know, you're on the, you know, why didn't you do something? Well, when you look at it from way the things look in September of 1950, you know, MacArthur's pretty clear what he wants to do. Let's go to the Yalu. And ultimately that becomes kind of the definition of victory. There are a number of things that you want to do in the Korean War from, again, stuff that I've already mentioned, protect, save South Korea, protect Japan, prove to NATO that you can be depended on, uh, all these sort of things. There's no, one of the things that you can also do that you agreed to in 1945 is you can unify the Korean nation. Korean ha Korea has been a unified nation for 2000 years at this point in time. So getting to the Yalu makes a lot of sense. And in fact, if you think about this, if you get to the Yalu, you solved all your problems. Boom, it's over. We won, yay, we go, you know, all that sort of stuff. So as John pointed out, there's no really sound reason to stop. Um, you know, if you have intelligence, like we now know the Chinese said, if they cross the 38th, we're coming in. Boom, okay, got it. So that might've been a reason to stop. The narrow neck might've been a reason to stop. But why, why not take all of it and get the problem solved? And by the way, if... You can get to the Yalu and you can beat back the Chinese invasion, you know, and you have a unified Korea. Well, Northeast Asia today looks a lot more simple. If I if I could just jump in. Um, yeah, please. go Because Nick, Nick was very eloquent about saying um, how MacArthur uh, was really, you know, his strength is operations. Uh, the amazing thing to me is and, and I, I agree. The amazing thing to me is you look at it from a purely operational uh, point of view, you are stretching your supply line so thin mm. that you are asking for a counteroffensive. So this is where I think, you know, the, it, and, I, and I loved Nick's uh, uh, discussion about MacArthur. You have uh, MacArthur and then you have MacArthur playing MacArthur. I, I love that line. Um, and here he's playing with MacArthur because he's forgetting all of the basic tenets of, of uh, keeping your ground lines and sea lines of communications open. Uh, and when you overstretch that, you are literally asking for trouble. So this is a perfect example of the principle of the culminating point of attack being vastly exceeded 
uh, by him, and you saw the the, the repercussions. Um, I, Mark, that is a really good point, and that is there's a lot of feuding between MacArthur and his headquarters staff and Walton Walker, who's 8th Army commander, on that very issue. And indeed, you go back to the Philippines in 1945, and you see that same issue. Uh, boss, our supply lines, you know, and he's like, ah, don't worry about it. It's one of the things that blew up in his face in 1942. So that's an exceptionally good point. Um, so th that's one of those kind of, you know, in one sense, it makes sense to go forward, but on the other hand, you are really overcommitting yourself. And that's one of the reasons why the Chinese are able to push us so far so fast is because we had overextended ourselves. One last thing. I said uh, Babe Ruth hit 715 home runs. I was incorrect. That was, he, he hit 714. It was Hank Aaron who hit 715. <laughs> Got to get that sorry. data point correct. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, and um, so as we as we shift to um, you know at the end of our time here and talking about how these these lessons learned, the stuff we talked about today, having the right person in charge, and and uh, you know victory disease and, and keeping with limited aims, how do you end the war? Um, you know what does this tell us about today? And you know competition with China in in over Taiwan or in the South China Sea. Um, are there any big key takeaways that we can? you know, glean from this that uh, might give us some strategic insights in the in the contemporary realm. Uh, uh, Mark, we'll start with you with this one. Well, I, mean, I think I already mentioned one. This is the beginning of us vastly underestimating our enemy mm -hmm. and thinking that we can achieve quick, decisive victories because we're such a great power. Um, and yet it's a lesson we never learn, even though we repeat the same mistake over and over again. Korea is the beginning of a rather depressing period in American history. Uh, you know, and we're just coming through with our golden age of American foreign policy, the implementation of the Marshall Plan, the construction of NATO and the United Nations. We're doing so many things so right. And yet on the military end, we're creating this, we're acting out of hubris, out of an exaggerated notion of what we can and cannot accomplish using the military instrument. That's the biggest takeaway I get. Okay, interesting. Nick, what do you think? I'd point out two things. Um, Korea for about three years is an active zone in or active theater in the Cold War. And one of the things that leads to a, the confrontation between Truman and MacArthur is that uh, the administration says, hey, we got to set Europe is what matters. We got we can't invest all this stuff here. And, you know, Tr MacArthur says, I didn't pick to fight this war, blah, 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 blah. So um, after 53, Korea is an inactive theater in the Cold War, and despite some efforts at various times throughout the Cold War, they are very determined to keep it inactive. Uh, they don't want it to suck off resources. Uh, Kim Il-sung tries to do some stuff in the 60s when the United States is involved in Vietnam. Not, no, not going to have it. The, Pueb um, the Pueblo? Uh, that, there are a lot of cross-border raids uh, for about three years between 66 and 69. There's the Blue House raid where they try to assassinate Park Chung-hee. Uh, in the 70s, they're digging the tunnels under the DMZ. So, um, and the attitude is, no, we're not going, Korea, we're done. So unless they actually cross the DMZ, I think, you know, it's, it's a done deal. With that said, okay, the big issue that's, there are several things that start the Korean War. You know, it's who gets to, the biggest one though, is ultimately who gets to replace the Japanese as the central government of Korea. And the answer that was in dispute in 1950 is 
the ROC, Republic of Korea versus the Democratic People's Republic. That issue is still to this day unresolved. And we tend, like when Kim uh, Jong-un starts making problems with, uh, you know, I've got a nuclear weapon. We were like, let's just be quiet and let's give you some food aid. That's the symptom. The problem is you still have two regimes and you've got to fix that sooner or later. And the answer has been, uh, we'll do it later. Mm-hmm. But that is the basic root of why North Korea is a problem today is, you know, you have two regimes, both want to control the entire nation. Definitely still an intractable problem in the contemporary realm. Uh, John, we'll end with you today. Thanks. Um, I think one lesson is get the right general or admiral. And often the first person that is chosen is not the right one. And we're going to see that in other wars and we can look backwards and see that. Um, one, uh, another lesson I think is a good thing that came out of this is that civilian control of the military was really established in a way that it had not been prior to that. So that many would argue exists in a a normative realm. There's just an understanding and an agreement even more powerful than the minimal legal aspects uh, that are involved. And so that became clear. And I think the American public understood that that had to be clear. So that's a positive uh, takeaway. Uh, A third issue is, um, and it's relevant to today, is, you know, new technology is kind of hard to, it's hard to figure out what to do with it. And we haven't talked nuclear weapons much here, but yes, we used them at the end of the Second World War. We did not give a lot of thought to that. We certainly didn't have a lot of strategic discussion and dialogue about them. And now they are a real issue in the Korean War. Um, And the question is, you know, are they just another artillery piece? Are they uh, something larger than that? And no one really knows uh, how to deal with that. The administration put some hard limits on it, but it becomes a, 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 you know, looking at that debate and whether it was right not to use them, and MacArthur had his views on it, I think is relevant to thinking about how we deal with cyber warfare um, and other issues today. And then finally, you know, one great lesson, which the uh, other great democratic president of this era, Mark, Lyndon Johnson, did learn. <laughs> we'll have was, to agree to disagree. <laughs> was, was, that, was that wars can kill your domestic agenda and okay, they can okay. kill progress at home if you don't um, manage them well. Well, <laughs> if you don't manage them. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't uh, go into the war understanding what the political parameters are going to be. And, you know, Truman, like every other president, faces pressure from both sides. There's pressure to escalate. And presidents need to understand that this is going to happen. And the military needs to understand this is a a challenge uh, once you get into a fight. Hey, John, if I could say one one more thing about the the importance of the Korean War is that it changes the whole scope of the Cold War. Prior to Korea, the Cold War is focused on Western Europe. Um, So it's not a global contest. Uh, The Korean War signifies a massive change in American defense policy, increased defense spending, uh, plus the beginning of a series of security arrangements uh, that will in, will give the United States not just uh, access to the global uh, 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 creation of al- alliances, 
but we will literally encircle the communists, both Chinese um, and the Soviet Union, uh, through these new ANZUS uh, 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 security arrangements uh, and uh, the several others that we enter into that makes the United States a global policeman at this point. And that irrevocably changes the nature of American superpower status and becomes much more oriented uh, to our military power. Mm. Outstanding. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you for a very interesting intellectual discourse and uh, raising the level of education for, uh, for our students here. Um, we'll see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank, <laughs> thank, you. You. thank you. Thanks, all. Thanks, John. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, John.